Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, glad that you're here. Um, start of a of a new year. It's it was odd being off these last uh, several weeks with with Christmas and New Year's, and it's nice to be back and uh, and starting a new series. Well, today is the first week of our series here on the Book of Daniel, um, and it's going to be exciting. George is starting the series on Revelation in Minneapolis. I'll be going through Daniel here in St. Paul, then after 11 weeks we'll flip-flop, and, uh, and Daniel and Revelation work so well together, it'll be fun to kind of see what the Lord has in store for us. Let me just open up our time in prayer, uh, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you, and we worship you for who you are. Um, Lord, we thank you for your joy, that, that you take joy and delight in us, and what strength that is. Uh, to know that we have your favor, to know that you look on us and say, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Lord, knowing that we have your love and your mercy uh, in just instills so much hope and strength in us. Lord, we just ask today that you open up our hearts and our minds to you and to your word. Uh, Lord, teach us. Teach us what it means to walk in you, to be faithful to you in a world that is increasingly unfaithful. Lord, help us, strengthen us in our, in our walk. Lord, help us to get a picture of who you are and to understand and to grow in our knowledge of how great your love is for us. So Lord, just be with us. Be with us this morning and guide us. In your name we pray. Amen. Like I said, if you're joining us this week uh, for the first time, or if you're not, we're just starting here uh, a study in the book of Daniel, which I'm really excited to, to, to get into. So if you have a Bible, open up to Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, we will go through things here on the screen as well, but I think it would be great just to kind of start right in on the Word. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to go through this first little part, this first narrative in Daniel. So Daniel 1 Starting in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. It's a pretty amazing opening kind of narrative to start with. 
I mean, so if, if you don't know the context of all of this, you've got the end of the kingdom of Israel, which is a big deal. If you've, if you've, been, if you've studied the Bible all, at all, if you grew up in the church, if you haven't even, the, the message of the Bible, right from the very beginning, there's always been this promise. God promised his people from the very beginning, you will be my people, I will be your God. He promises this, I mean, starting with Adam and Eve, but he promises this all the way through, but specifically to Abraham. He tells this one man, right, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will make you a great nation. I will give you peace. I will give you a land. I will give you a king. There's always been that promise of a king who will come and who will reign over them and that they will live in this land of peace and of justice. And they take the land. If you know that narrative, leaving Egypt out of Moses and with Joshua, they take this land that God had promised them. They live in the land. They dwell in the land. They have a king who is able to establish for them a kingdom, David, if you're familiar with that. I mean, one of the greatest military feats is how David was able to carve out of, of Palestine, this very just small, insignificant place, right in the middle of all the superpowers and empires of the age. You know, if just for like modern, con- it'd be like Poland or something like that in Europe, like right in between all of these warring worlds, they carved out for themselves a kingdom. David and Solomon, they had a hundred years there where Israel was the power and they had it. But it was brief and it was short-lived. And after the death of Solomon, the sons, the continuing sons, go in continually worse and worse spirals and ability to rule and lead and they take the people into sin and the kingdom, everything unravels until you finally get to the end here with Nebuchadnezzar laying siege to the city of Jerusalem because at this point all that's left of that mighty kingdom of David because David and Solomon's kingdom was vast. By the end it's one city, that's it, just the city of Jerusalem and here as the text says, Nebuchadnezzar comes he lays siege to it, and he destroys it. He takes away, they enter into, right, the temple. They go into the Holy of Holies. They take out the vessels that are in there, carry them away, carry the people away. It's over, right? That promise of God to his people, I will give you a place. I will give you a king. I will give you a kingdom. <laughs> you will... And those promises, right, they just, they ring. It's so hurtful now to hear that. You will live in that land and there will be peace, right? You will no longer be afraid. Your enemies will no longer, right? And now it's over. It's gone. They've been carried away and there's no more Israel. And you find yourself waking up in a foreign country, in a foreign land. And you have this generation lost, as the narrative kind of gave us, and we find this from just in historical artifacts as well, the Babylonians write about this time, they take, they take the best and the brightest. They take an entire generation out of Jerusalem. Before they, before they finally destroy it, they take a generation away of the best and of the brightest. Anyone who is of the nobility, anyone who could become the king, right? like you mentioned here, they're all of Judah, Daniel and his friends. Because they all could have the potential to be this promised king, this promised child. They have the ability to rule over the land. They have the looks. They have the charisma. They have the wisdom. These are the ones that could do it. 
And still, instead of killing them off, right, Babylon takes them and they bring them back. They bring the best and the brightest of Israel. They bring them back and they give them everything. Everything. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing empire. He's an amazing king. Historians would argue that Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most successful, greatest king who ever ruled a kingdom. His empire, what he was able to do is, is truly unbelievable. And he does it through this policy of benevolence. The last empire right before Babylon, sorry, not to get too historically nerdy, I'm sorry about that, but I just love history, but Assyria, the ones right before them, they're the worst. They come in, and they did this too. They, they besieged Jerusalem. God delivered Hezekiah from them. But Assyria, when they went through, they would come into your town, they would just kill everybody, and just the young girls they would force into marriage. I mean, it was the worst. They were not the ones you wanted to conquer your town. Everyone lived in constant fear of the Assyrians coming. Now, Babylon, nobody necessarily wanted Babylon to take over their country. But when they took over, they conquered your army, but then they would let you live. They didn't kill you off. They let families live together. They may have, they eventually, Nebuchadnezzar had enough of Jerusalem, and so he took everybody away, right? Because he let them, for years, he let them try to rule themselves under him, right? They're like, well, I'll let you stay. We'll even let you have a king, Jehoiakim. You can have your king, you can have your little city, I mean, it's just one city, fine, you can do it, but after years and years of Jerusalem just continuing to rebel, and they kept trying to fight against him, he's like, fine, forget it, we're done. I'm just going to take you all out. I'm going to take you out of this city, and I'm going to bring you to my city. And instead of killing them off, instead of killing off the king, he didn't kill the king, he didn't kill the heir to the throne, instead of that, he gave them everything, which is what... Nebuchadnezzar's policy was conquered people he would bring home and he would indoctrinate them. He would show them the goodness of Babylon. He said, look, I will give you a home, which he did for the Jews. He took all the Jews into Babylon. And he gave them a section of the city. This is yours. You can live here. I will give you jobs. He gave them jobs. I will give you food. I will give you money. I will give you an education. I'll give you everything you could use, anything you could need, which is what he does. And so you find these men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, blanked on the last one there. You find these men, and they're barely men, right? They're teenagers at the time, probably 16, 17, in a foreign land, being indoctrinated, being educated, being given everything. The greatest education that you could have. The greatest food. Everything. The world's definition of arriving. Right? They've got it. They had it all. They have the looks. The text really wants you to see that even. Right? Like they, they're without blemish. These are handsome men. They are fit to stand before the king meaning they have the confidence, the swagger, the personas. Right? Like these are competent, really powerful young men. The whole world is ahead of them. They have the education given to them. They have security. They have comfort. They have a future. At the end of this three years education, which is going to be the greatest education any human could have, 
they will have the greatest and the best jobs available. They have it all. And they even get new names to seal the deal. Right? That chief eunuch gives them new names. Daniel, whose name means, right, God is my judge. That's what Daniel means. God is my judge. Is given a new name, Belshazzar, which is Bel protects my life. This is a Babylonian god, Bel. Hanani, which means the Lord is gracious, is given a new name, Shadrach, which means I serve at the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Mishael, which means, you know, who is what God is. It's given a new name, Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azaria, the Lord is a helper, is given a new name, Abednego, which means a servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god's. The names, right, the power of new names. You can see what the Babylonians are doing here, right? Taking, stripping away their identities, trying to take away their source of security. And this is what happens in, in, in U.S. history. If you know anything about chattel slavery, when, you know, slaves are brought over from Africa. That was the very first thing you do. Take away their names. Give them new names, right? You no longer have a name. This is now who you are. This is the place now where you're going to be looking for your security, for your meaning. The names were meant, right, to show them, to direct them to a new source of security and protection and identity in their life. Stop looking to Yahweh, right? In reality, right, what did he do for you? You lost everything. Here, look to our gods. They'll provide for you. Look to Bel. Look to Aku, right? Look to Nego. These are the ones. These are the ones who will provide good for you. Yahweh had nothing good for you. Look to these gods. They have good for you. So you have this loss of a kingdom, the loss of a king, the loss of a home, even the very loss of their names. And so as we read the narrative, right, the, the narrator wants you as a reader to think, you know, what, what will they do? How will they respond? How would you respond? How would I respond, right, as a teenager to lose everything, to be taken away, to be plucked from your home, to be taken to a new land, and to be offered everything good, right? They're not imprisoned, but they're offered good. How would we respond in that experience of being in exile, right? We can partly relate to this and partly we can't relate to this. Right? I mean, obviously, this experience still happens around the world of people being taken and brought into new cultures and new places and experiencing those things to be exiled, some by force, some by choice. If you think of those who are fleeing war-torn areas like Syria or the Hmong population here, the Somali population, exile, no longer home, new lands, new places, new identities. Yet, where I teach at a private school, oftentimes international students come and they take new names because it's just easier, right, to have an English name than to go by their Chinese name or their Vietnamese name or those types of things because I can never pronounce it anyway. So, oh, just just call me Chris. To be in a new place where nothing is the same, all the values are different. And we all experience it. As Christians, we know that feeling too of being in a place that's not our home. We know this isn't where I was meant for. 
I don't feel normal. I don't feel like I'm fitting in, but I do. I'm part of the population, right? We're now kind of very far removed into captivity where we almost feel like we're no longer exiles. You feel like you're native. Then you start to have those moments where you realize this is not my home. This is not the place I should go. Next section, verse 8. We see how they respond. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants with ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So here we have that op- the opening response of Daniel and his friends. And this is going to set the tone for the book of Daniel. Where you have this very sneaky rebellion. Where Daniel and his friends don't go along with what's asked of them. They didn't give in. We're going to see it in a couple of ways. They kept their names. And the author wants you to see that, right? He keeps calling him Daniel. He doesn't call him Belshazzar ever. They keep going by their Hebrew names, even though they have other names. They have dual citizenship, dual identities, right? Some people don't understand that feeling, and especially in America, where you have, feel like you have two names. You go by two names. They're going by double names. They're going to let the Babylonians call them their Babylonian names, but they're not going to forget their Hebrew names, And then they don't eat the food, which is an interesting rebellion. (laughs) It's an interesting way to subvert power and authority. They rebel within the system. They don't rebel against it, but they rebel within it. It It isn't what you think it will be. This rebellion is a very hidden rebellion, but also very visible. The fruits of it will be visible, but what they're actually doing is going to be invisible. It's just going to be for them. Right? We don't want to eat this food. And it's not kosher. Right? It's not kosher food. It's not the food that's been sacrificed properly. It's right that it's offerings have been given to, to all these different foreign gods. Like, no, we're not going to eat this. Right? All right. It's an, odd, it's an odd thing to say no to after you've lost everything. And it's really ultimately this kind of reversal of power a reversal of wealth and security, which just kind of reminds us so much of the gospel and of Jesus and coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, how everything gets reversed. I mean, here, uh, Daniel, they do the same thing. So look, what you say is good for us is not. 
we don't want it. We don't want the best foods. We don't want what you think provides us with security and comfort. We would rather have God. Daniel and his friends, right, their rebellion centers around giving up good things for the sake of better things. Because to the eyes of the world, what's wrong with this? Why not just eat what's been given to you? I mean, thank God that he has provided this good food for you. You should eat it. I mean, that's what I'd be telling them if I was in the exile with them, right? Like, oh, the Lord has been merciful to us. Which was with Solomon's prayer. Solomon prayed this. He prayed, when Israel goes into exile, because the early kings knew where this was all going. That when they go, I pray that they will find mercy. Well, here's the mercy of God. He's provided for us the best. He's given us the best food, the best jobs, the best everything. But Daniel and his friends said, no, we don't want it. What this culture says is the best, we don't want. And in that way, they remind themselves, right, of the true source of light. They won't be defiled by what is seen as good in the eyes of their culture. The eyes of the culture says this is good. Not just good, the best. And they say, if we do this, this will defile us. And I think what we start to see, the narrator wants us to see that, especially in the naming in this food, to be defiled means to lose sight of God. Right? It's not to become all of a sudden unholy or some sort of, you know, like, oh no, I've done something terribly wrong. It's that I've lost sight of where my wealth, true wealth comes from. I've lost sight of where my true security comes from. I've lost sight of who God is. I've forgotten him. Right? That seems to be the greatest worry within exile. Will you forget Yahweh? Will they forget who they are? Will they forget who their God is? And they have good reason to forget. Right? Because all that's happened has been heartache and pain for them. But will they forget Will they turn away from that God? And then the results of it all. Starting in verse 17 here. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Wow, right? They get rewarded for all of this work. For their, they don't forget the Lord. They continue to rely on Him and they find favor. They find God's provision. He meets their needs. And it really is the answer to Solomon's prayer when he prays that, Lord, will they please just show mercy to them? Let them find kindness in exile. They find it. They find it with the chief eunuch who's over them, and they find it with the king 
the greatest king who ever lived, Nebuchadnezzar, loves them. Thinks they're great. Do you imagine that? What that would do to your just self-esteem? <laughs> to the greatest king who ever lived in human history thinks you're ten times better than everyone else he's ever seen. That's what their experience is. They find such favor. And Daniel gets to live until Cyrus, that final piece. Now that's intended to tell you, because so after Nebuchadnezzar, after his incredible reign, then Babylon declines and Persia comes next. That'll be the next great empire. And Cyrus is his king, is the king of Persia. And he will send all the Jews home. It's like, go back. So Daniel will be there at the very beginning, the fall of Jerusalem, and he's also going to be able to live and see the day when all the Jews go back. That's quite the graciousness and provision of God for Daniel. So we can read these narratives. You know, right, we, we hear this and we see it, and we can understand a lot of it. We're in a similar position we live in a place that's not our own. We live in a place with rulers over us. We live in a culture that values a lot of things. We are swimming in things that are good, but ultimately will ruin and defile us. We're called to walk in wisdom, in truth, in love. We know that, right? We just finished out of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we know we're supposed to live in a way that is different we're supposed to live distinct and holy lives. We're supposed to refuse the king's food. We're supposed to keep our true names. We're supposed to do all of that. And we were meant to find favor and blessing. Scripture talks about that. If we walk in wisdom, we should be getting more and more favor. We should be experiencing all the blessing and the prosperity that comes with it. That's what we were made for. But we don't. right? We don't experience these things. As I look at the story, right, as we read these things more and more, it, I'm not Daniel, right? I've never been Daniel. None of us are Daniel. One, right, I, I, I don't share that same experience. I, I was not taken from my home. I'm a native. If anything in the story, I'm not one of the Jews. I'm one of the Babylonians, if anything, in this, na- in this narrative. How would a Babylonian read the story? Right, what would they take away? It wouldn't be be like Daniel. Because you couldn't. We can't. I can't be Daniel. I eat the food offered to me all the time. Right? I can't diet for like a month, let alone like give up something. Always. No, I mean, no, I just, I, I can't. I, I partake in what this world gives me. If it's good, I will do it. I will take it. And I will thank God for it. I don't live this distinct life that he's called us to live. I call upon other names all the time for my security and my comfort. Right? I worship a lot of other gods. I believe that money protects me. I believe, right, that the government can save me. I believe in a lot of things before I believe in God as my protector and my savior and my comfort. So 
So why don't we live the way that we're supposed to live? Why don't we live like Daniel? Why don't I? Why don't, why don't we do these things that we know we're supposed to do? And I think it's because we're afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of missing out. I'm afraid of not enjoying life enough. But could you really imagine giving up something good in your life? And you probably can think of what these things are. That the world and the culture and everyone around you thinks is so good that you think is good. But you know it defiles you. You know that it leads you away from God and not towards him. You know that it leads you to trust in those things more and more and more and not trust in God. I don't want to give any of those good things up because I won't enjoy life. I won't, I'll be missing out on things. I won't have enough. And I rationalize, right, that these good gifts are gifts from God and that I should just partake. Right? Why not? Why not enjoy everything that this world has to give me? It's not wrong. It's not sinful. I just, just enjoy. And ultimately, too, I'm after favor. Right? You read the story, and I want what they got at the end of it. We all do. We want favor. We're after it. We're after favor desperately. I'm desperately after the favor of someone. I'm after the favor of my family. I'm after the favor of my friends. I'm after the favor right, of my church. I'm after the favor of my boss. I'm after the, I want people to look at me favorably. I want people to see me and say, you know what? He's living a good life. I want them to look at me and say, right, he's 10 times better. I'll, I'll accept one times better, right? I'll, I'm, I'll be happy if I just meet expectations. I don't need to be, you know, but it's, I want people to look, I want to find favor. I want people to say, that's it. He's living the life. So I may even give up things. I may try to live a really religious life. Some of you may be patting yourself in the back, like, I, you know what, I am a Daniel. I've done this my whole life. I give up all kinds of things. And you're after this, so, right, give me the favor that I need. We're ultimately after favor from somebody, if it's from our king or if it's from our God, we want favor and so we'll protest, right? We'll rebel against the system. We'll say, yeah, this culture, this world is wrong. It's sinful. And so our protest can be very public. Christians, right, religion has been really good at this, making very public protests, very public statements. That this is wrong. I'm not going to do this. We're not going to go along with this. This isn't, we do that. We make public protests, but inwardly, right, privately we're enslaved. I protest against my slavery, but inwardly I love it, and I can't imagine a different life. We talk a big game, but in my heart there is no distinction between me and the Babylonians. I give things up, I make the right choices, but in my heart there's fear, there's guilt. So what hope is there? <laughs> what hope is there for us? Living in Babylon, where it seems like either we're native Babylonians or we're exiles, either position, I, I love the things that my culture loves. And my heart is so easily defiled by money, by success, by power. I'm driven by these things. And I can publicly protest, but inwardly, I'm still enslaved. What's the point? What hope, if I can't be Daniel, 
What hope is there? And because the audience who's reading this book, this is part of the writings, this is the last section of the Old Testament, it's not to be Daniel. They never had a chance to be Daniel. <laughs> right? It's written to a people after the exile. They're not in exile any longer. They're back in their land. Why would I read this if I can't do any of it? Because it's to point us out, it's to point us to the hope of a Daniel, to what Daniel did, and to hope for someone even better than, a da- than, what, than this Daniel. Because when we look at this, in light of Scripture, Daniel is pointing us to someone who is even greater than him. Someone who was born to rule, just like he was. Right? Born into nobility, into power, into comfort, had everything, right? And instead of by force giving it up, which is what Daniel did, Christ, right, Jesus willingly gave it up. He wasn't taken from his home. He left his home. He left his throne. He left what was his. And he came into captivity willingly. He dwelt among a people that would reject his rule. He was offered everything in the world, right? If you know the story about Jesus, if you know the Gospels, Daniel was offered the food, and he turned it down. Jesus was offered everything. If you know that story of how he's sitting there at the top of the temple and looks out, right, and the devil tells him, you could have this all, Jesus. Don't you know? You could rule over this whole world. Everything is yours. All of this is yours. Because it was. It was his. And he could have taken it. And it wouldn't have been wrong. Because it was his world. And he gave it up. He was offered everything. And he gave it up to do this Father's will. To give us what he deserved. He wasn't defiled by the wealth and the blessings and the privilege of this world. Right? He willfully, purposely, intentionally lived a life of poverty without a home. He, couldn't, he didn't even have enough money to pay for his funeral. He had nothing, purposely, so that we could have everything. He left his father's table. He left his home in order to invite us to the feast. Daniel gives up the food. That's good. Jesus gives up the food so that we will come in, so that we will have a place at that table and partake. He earned the favor. Daniel receives the favor of the king. Jesus earns every favor. He earned every favor from man and from God. But instead of receiving the favor that he deserved, right? Daniel stood there before the king and got all of that favor. Jesus stood before the king and got beaten and whipped. He got rejected by man. He was utterly left alone. Rejected not even by man, but by God himself on the cross. He was forsaken, even though he deserved all favor. So that we will always be accepted. So that we will always receive that favor. Jesus is such a better Daniel. Right, the story of Daniel is to point us to this greater story. It's to point us to a greater hero. Daniel is a hero. There's no question, but none of us can be him, except for Christ. And he was Daniel, and he was a much, much better version of Daniel. And what does that mean for us then? 
if Jesus has done this, if Jesus has lived that life that we were supposed to live, which is the good news of the gospel, if that's true, then we have everything that we ever will need. If I think about living in exile now, right, what were those things that kept me from really living like Daniel, from living with wisdom? Well, I'm afraid that my needs aren't going to be met. I'm afraid to give up a raise. I'm afraid to go, right, with, I mean, once, I don't know if this is like you, it's like me, once my salary increases, there's no going down. I mean, my lifestyle just changes to, I can't, I, I can't ever give up any of the things this world is giving me. There's no going backwards from the blessings. I need more and more and more. If Jesus is true, if the gospel is true, I have everything I need. All my needs are met. I can freely give from my finances. I can freely give of my resources. I can freely give of anything. And beyond that, I have the favor of the king already. That no matter who I am, no matter what I've done, I have his favor. The king looks at me and he finds me pleasing. Right? I don't have to be perfect and without blemish and defect to be good looking and to be powerful and all the wisdom. No. He looks at me and he is pleased. I have the favor of the king. We no longer live in fear. We no longer have a fear of not finding favor. I can now look at the things in my life that I know are not good for me. Right? And you can do this. Right? Think of those things in your life that the world says is good, but you know it's not good. Right? You know it's not good. But your culture, your world, your workplace, everywhere around you says these are the things that are good. You know it's not. I can give them up because I have nothing to fear. Because I have everything been given to me. I have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus gave up everything. And instead of receiving the favor he deserved, he secured the favor of God for us. A people who would never be able to earn it. So I live a life without fear. I have everything. Now, I can be outwardly and inwardly at peace. I don't just have to talk a big game. I don't just have to publicly put up a big show about how I'm anti-whatever it is. In fact, I can live a very outwardly quiet life, like Daniel, like his friends. This is going to be unbelievable when you really look at his life. He is working for the regime, the king, who has destroyed his home. Right? They're worshiping other gods. We talk about, we have a hard time, right, voting for somebody, voting for a president who's not a Christian. His king is worshiping other gods and is asking him to. And he still works for him. He still seeks the good of that king and of that country. Inwardly, because inwardly he's at peace. I don't have to outwardly be so riled up. I have inward peace and quietness on the outside. The greatest rebellion we can do in our culture today. You know, as we look at this world, we look at the government, we look at everything around us, how do, we, how do we live this faithful rebellion? The greatest thing we can do is to not find value and security in the things that this culture says provide us with value and security. I find my identity, right? I find my security 
We're called to find our identity and our security in Jesus. Not in any president, not in any job, not in money, not in success, none of those things. If we put our hope in him, we live distinctive, crazy lives. We find it in Jesus, which then empowers us to live these lives that work hard within a culture, but that still speak the truth in love, that find hope in him, that we can live, in a, we can live these lives that look so peaceful, but are completely different. But only if we find our hope in him. If I find my hope in me, and I keep working and trying to earn that favor, earn that life, earn that security and that comfort from the government, from my job, or from God, I will always be anxious. I will always have fear. I will never have enough. And I'll always be striving. Inwardly, there will be no peace. So outwardly, right, how could there be? Look to Christ and look to his finished work. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, that you look on us and you're pleased. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. Lord, we acknowledge to you, we confess just how easily seduced we are by this world. Uh, Lord, how we are so enslaved to things that we don't even realize we're enslaved to. Lord, help us. Strengthen us. Strengthen us in our inner being to find our satisfaction in you so that we start to find the things of this world and the things of this culture less and less satisfying. That we no longer turn to the things in this world that will so quickly ensnare us and lead us to death. Lord, we want more and more of you. So strengthen us. Help us to have hope. Strengthen us in our faith. Lord, just strengthen us to see you and who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.